Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. I was visiting India three years ago, and this amazing guy, he said he knows a family who has a piano. That's the only family he knows who has a piano, and he's going to arrange for me to play. And he did. So we all went there for a special dinner party so I could play. It was a magnificent home. It's, I think, the biggest privately owned mansion in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. So we arrived there and I see piano in a corner of this huge living room, kind of shiny piano upright. It was not a baby grand and it was completely out of tune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't think anybody ever played it. So I kind of looked at my friend like with those eyes. Yeah. And then I sat down and I played as if it was a perfect piano and nobody noticed anything. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to Piano Whisperer. My name is Ben Klinger, and I feel so privileged to have with me today pianist Katja Graneva. Katja Graneva has concertized in the United States, Europe, the UK, South America, Mexico, Asia, and Africa. She has performed more times than any other solo female pianist in the history of Carnegie Hall. Katja captures the hearts of audiences with a rare combination of vulnerability, poignance, and effortless virtuosity. As a teenage pianist, she came to New York in 1989, and she had two goals, to study in America and one day to play in Carnegie Hall. Katja made her American performance debut in 1993, performing the Mozart Piano Concerto No. 27 in B-flat K595 with the Baltimore Symphony, and she made her Carnegie Hall debut on May 13, 1998. Living most of her adult life in New York, she acquired a reputation as a pianist of exceptional romantic and poetic expression. Commentators agree that she achieves her impact at the piano more through subtlety than by force. Above all, she values the beauty of tone. Born in Moscow, Ms. Graneva began studying piano at the age of six, attending the Moscow Music School. She went on to the Moscow High School of Music under the aegis of the prestigious Moscow Conservatory, where she studied with Professor Pavel Messner. It was during her tutelage with Maestro Messner that Katja began giving recitals and experiencing the special and spontaneous interaction between artist and audience that would become the hallmark of her performances. In New York, she was awarded a scholarship to enter the Mann School of Music graduate program, studying with Nina Svetlanova, followed by private coaching with Flavia Mashka, who played a key role in her development. Ms. Graneva has been soloist with the Acadian Symphony, the ARS Nova Musicians Chamber Orchestra, the Manhattan Virtuosi Orchestra, and the European Philharmonic Orchestra in France. She has captivated audiences at the Laurier Society in Paris and in one of the most prestigious concert halls in Paris, Salle Gaveau. Katja has received several awards over the years, including the Goosey Peace Prize given by Filipino President Gloria Arroyo in 2006. Despite her demanding concert schedule, Ms. Graneva makes time to play at private gatherings, often for the not-for-profit community, to raise awareness and funding for specific causes. Currently during covid she is performing prolifically, offering private and deeply intimate virtual concerts online through Zoom. Ms. Graneva has made a specialty of performing romantic piano music, and she has recorded nine CDs. From Katcha with Love, Katcha from the Heart, Katcha Inspiration Blue, Love and Fire, The Dances, the Bach Cello Sonatas with cellist Byron Duckwall, 
soiree French masterpieces with cellist Byron Duckwall, classical holiday liquid dream, and the complete Chopin nocturnes. Katja, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's my honor to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad we could make this happen. I want to begin by talking about your childhood. In your Fox News interview with Ernie Anastos, you mentioned that your mom was a great role model, and I found that interesting. Could you tell us in what way or ways you looked up to her? Well, you know, we grew up in Russia, and it was wonderful that my mother actually stayed home with us. Mm. They made that decision, my parents, that my father would work. He was a cancer research scientist, and my mother just stayed home. She was historian by education, but both of my parents, they really loved art. Mm -hmm. They went to the best concerts, to best exhibitions. And I think my mom, she recognized that both of us had talents early because my sister is an artist. Mm. So she really made a commitment to nurture those talents. So we had very nurturing environment, you know. She was so loving. She was always there. She took us to the best teachers they could find in Moscow, the best concerts, the best art gatherings. We were friends with a very famous theater producer at that time, the most famous person. And we were always at his home, you know, maybe once a week. And I met Alfred Schnitke, who was, you know, one of the most important composers of the century. Mm. So it's Alfred Schnitke who came to our house when I was just started taking piano lessons and said, you know, your girl has a talent. You should really like pay attention and be serious about it. Wow. But I think it's my mother's love and nurturing qualities which enabled us to become artists. Wow, that's beautiful. So when I play, I think about giving people that experience. Like I want them to be nurtured by this beautiful music, you know? Yeah, and you accomplished that. I definitely experienced that myself, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So how early did you start attending concerts, and then how did these experiences impact who you are today? I started going to concerts when I was five years old, and also was thanks to my grandmother, who was also the most amazing person in this world. Mm. And remember, first concerts, she took me to the concerts, and We listened to a concert pianist. I don't remember his name right now, but I remember thinking, how can he do it? How can he sit there for two hours and produce this magic on the piano? And then everybody gets excited. So I was very drawn to that. Like, I didn't understand anything about music, but I was drawn, I think, to that energy that piano concert was producing, you know? Yeah. And now you grew up during the Iron Curtain, as they say, right? Yeah. Very difficult time. Yeah. So what was the musical culture in Russia like during that time? And and how easy was it to hear great pianists? Musical culture probably was the best thing during that time. Because, you know, the fact that people had hard time in finding food, like my mother had to go to shop at least three to five hours a day. We all had to split and go to different stores and stay in line for hours and hours and hours to get a piece of cheese or potato or something to eat. So that was a very difficult part. Mm-hmm. So what happened that I think people went more inward and were trying to find happiness in art. Mm. So the art was very cultivated. So you can go to concerts at Moscow Conservatory for very, very little money and hear amazing musicians. And it was completely normal to do it. Like 
parents would take children to great concerts. Mm. At least it was very normal for me, you know. Yeah. And so as a young girl, who were your favorite pianists? Well, I grew up with, at the time, Richter. He was my favorite pianist in Moscow, in Russia. And I remember his concert so well. It was incredible. But then when I was 15 years old, Horowitz came to Moscow to give his concert. I didn't even know much about him. I mean, I heard his recordings, but it wasn't like he was my favorite pianist. I didn't know him that well, you know. It was impossible to get tickets to the concert. The tickets were sold out the moment they announced the concert. But then, can you imagine what happened the day of the concert? It's because of my mother. The woman who worked at Moscow Conservatory box office, she called her like literally three hours before and she said, I have two tickets. Oh, wow. (laughs) On the fourth row, you should take Katya to see this concert. Oh, man. And we went and I was sitting on the fourth row right in the middle so I could see his hands. I mean, I could see him perfectly. Wow. And when I was sitting there, I thought I I never heard anything so beautiful in my life. Mm -hmm. That was my experience. I thought, now I know why I love music, because the music's supposed to sound like that. Because the sound in the hall was so ethereal, so magical, like from another world, completely. And everything he did, it just was perfect, you know. And that concert changed my life, Mm -hmm. because after that, I started practicing every minute I had, probably 10 hours a day. I would sit like till midnight at my Steinway in Moscow and try to find the sound he had Mm -hmm. and that touch, because he had such a light touch. And I think I accomplished it. That's like people always say a very light touch. It's because of that. I was under such amazing impression and I was like, I couldn't believe what I heard. And I was young enough, so it inspired me, and I just wanted to play like him. Of course, nobody can play like him, but but you can have some qualities, you know? Well, that's a different conversation entirely. That concert inspired so many people. I mean, that I, I've listened to that concert numerous times, I, and I even have pictures of the audience. I'll have to look on the fourth row and see if I can find you. I am there. I can see myself. I had a yellow, like very bright kind of yellow shirt. <laughs> wow. I, and so how old were you at that time? I was 15. Oh, what an impressionable time that was. Oh my goodness. How awesome is that? That's a beautiful story. That was so amazing. Yeah. Oh. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. In America, we hear about how intense and rigorous studies were at the Moscow Conservatory, especially during that particular time period. So how was it for you there? And did you have a good experience? Did you find ample mentors? Yeah, I was very lucky because, again, you know, my parents were not musicians, but we just met the right people along the way. And I just tell you the story. I We used to spend all summers in my country house in our country house. And I practiced piano like most of the time. And my grandmother was in charge of paying bills, like collect money for paying bills for electricity from all the people who lived in that neighborhood, you know? Mm-hmm. There were maybe like 30 houses. So then she went to collect money from somebody who was a famous cellist, Natalia Shahovskaya. And she happened to be at home. So my grandmother said, you know, we have my granddaughter seems to be talented, but we have no idea what to do with her. She loves music, but we don't know what to do. So then Natalia Shahovskaya, she said, 
well, I would like to help her, even though she never met me. She said, I'm going to send her to a friend of mine who is teaching in Moscow, that famous school and the Moscow Conservatory. And if he says she's talented, I'm going to do everything to help her. Wow. So she arranged that meeting and I went and I played for this guy. And he called her and he said, you know, she's very musical. So she's talented. Like, that's rare, like for somebody to be so musical. So then she's the one who helped me to get into that school. And then my dream was to study with this professor, Pavel Messner, who was teaching at Moscow Conservatory, had very few students. But he took me to his class because basically of her, you know, he arranged for me to play for him. He liked me, but she pushed him. She said, you have to take her in your your class. And he did. So for three years, I studied with him. And that was the best years of my life. I was so happy. I can't tell you. Because he was such a deep and subtle musician. So all the stuff I had inside came out, you know. And I practiced. Like, I just lived from lesson to lesson. Yeah. I practiced every minute I had. And the school was very rigorous because it was specialized school. Yes. And every two months we had to perform in front of people a new program. So everybody had to practice, you know. Mm. It was a very exciting time. I Sometimes I think it was the happiest years of my life. Yeah, I can imagine just constant light bulbs going on and enlightenment and passion and then the time to um, dedicate to that practice. I mean, that must have been really, you must have just really felt alive. I just was very, very happy and Mm -hmm. in love, in love with music, in love with this professor. I was in love like with whatever I was doing. And there was no worries because I don't have to worry about paying rent or where do I have to travel next, you know? None of that existed. It was just amazing time. I'm very grateful for that time. As a late teen, you came to America. It was hard to leave the Soviet Union at that time in history. So how did you get here? It actually kind of relates to my story because uh, my professor, Pavel Messner, he got sick and he was not well and he didn't want to continue teaching at my school. And I was finishing this college. It was four years on the Moscow Conservatory. And then I was supposed to go to Moscow Conservatory and I wanted to study with him, of course. And he said he will not take me because he was not well. And he told my mom that I'm very talented and he doesn't want to have responsibility for this talent, basically. Wow. So I was heartbroken, actually. I'll bet. And at that time, my father had two scientists who came to work with him for one month from Buffalo. They were cancer research scientists. And they came to visit us in our country house and I played piano. And Carl uh, said you know, I would like to invite Katya to America. I think she needs a break. Why doesn't she just come for one month's vacation? So they invited me and they made all the papers for me to come just for one month to visit. And I had one year off. Like once I finished the college and the Moscow Conservatory, I had one year off before taking exams to go to continue. So then it was a good timing for me to go away for a month. And nobody really were leaving at that time. It was just the beginning when they kind of start permitting people to go, just even for vacation. Yeah. And even to get the visa to travel. I remember I had to go on a long interview and they were asking me like, well, you're going away for 30 days. Like who's staying behind? Well, I said, well, my sister, my mother, my father, my grandmother. And then I looked at the woman. I said, my favorite dog. <laughs> and then I said, my favorite dog. I, I loved my dog so much, I could never imagine leaving him behind, you know? Yeah, sure. So they gave me visa to travel to America. And when I came to America, 
there was another coincidence, like somebody in Russia gave us connection to stay for a few days in New York with this really wonderful couple. And they were so kind with me. I went to Buffalo and I visited my friends and I even played a concert in the church. But then I came back to New York and they said, why don't you stay another month? Like, you don't have nothing to do right now in Moscow. Just stay with us. So I ended up staying with them six months and then I ended up leaving them for five years. Oh, wow. Like I never made the decision to leave. It just was made for me. You know, I couldn't go back. Yeah. There were so many things which happened. I just couldn't go back to Russia. And I didn't want to study in Moscow Conservatory because I didn't want to study with anybody else except Messner. Yeah. So it's almost like this force kicked me out of Moscow, you know? Yeah. And I was supposed to be here in New York. Wow. It was exciting, but it was very difficult. It was difficult because there was no really computers at that time. I only could talk to my mother once a month. You felt completely disconnected, you know? You had the airmail, which was like two weeks each way, right? <laughs> yeah. So somehow, though, they were able to arrange the paperwork for you to stay, it sounds like. Well, yes. And I got a student visa because I went straight to master's program. I took exams and I was so advanced that I basically skipped bachelor degree and I went straight to master's. And then I changed to tourist visa to student visa. Perfect. That's just a meant-to-be situation. Yeah. So what did you think about the U.S. at that time? Well, you know, I was so excited to be in New York. I thought New York was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I love New York because, you know, in Europe, like people gossip about each other. Everybody wants to like, <laughs> you know, put everybody down. And I felt such a freedom in New York. I felt like people just leave everybody alone and just go about their business. And I loved it, you know. Like some kind of free spirit. Yeah, that's interesting. That was very exciting. Like New York has that energy. I feel like when you want to accomplish something, there'll be enough people behind you helping you to accomplish a goal. Hmm. And they're not going to take you down. In Europe, it can be complicated. You know, there are a lot of different forces operating, you know. Hmm. When I was growing in Moscow, I don't think I could have been a concert pianist. There was no way. Hmm. So I was meant to come to New York. Yeah. Now, your performance career has developed and you perform live quite prolifically. In fact, as I mentioned in your bio, you've performed live as a solo performer more than any other woman in history at Carnegie Hall. You perform also a wide range of composers. And in my opinion, you perform them all like they're your favorites, which is so compelling to me. So we're going to listen to a couple of recordings of you now, both Chopin Nocturnes, number eight and number 20. And given all you've recorded and performed over the years, can you tell us why you chose these pieces? Well, Chopin is probably my favorite composer and so close to my heart. And I think he's called poet of the piano. And the nocturnes, they really express it. And I always wanted to record all Chopin nocturnes. And it took me a few years to really do it, finally. So I'm really very happy about this accomplishment. But why I chose number eight in D-flat major... Because I remember that famous pianist who would come and play in Moscow Conservatory, very often they would play this nocturne for the encore. So it always stuck in my head like something I want to learn one day. Like, And I also remember Rubinstein played this piece so beautifully and Paderewski. So this is one of my most favorite nocturnes. The last one, number 20, 
is posthumous in C-sharp minor, was the first piece I learned by Chopin when I was eight years old, and I fell in love with his music because of this piece. I just couldn't believe that somebody would write something so beautiful, so simple, and go straight to your heart. Yeah. Now, you also shared something interesting with me about the recording method or the technology applied to the recording. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, it was mastered with this amazing thing called Real Feel, which Rob from Boney developed. You basically have a sound of LPs, very warm and very rounded sound, and it's healing for your body. The digital recordings, there's something about it which the nervous system gets affected, but it's very subtle. Mm -hmm. So the Real Feel is basically like listening to old LPs recordings with that very warm, very rounded sound. Yeah, it sounds very warm, as you say, and as if you're listening in the room, you're right there with the piano. Before we listen, I want to thank Classic Pianos for sponsoring this podcast and making these episodes possible. So thank you, Classic Pianos. Now let's listen to Katya. Thank you. 
Well, thank you so much, Katya, for providing that music for us. I want to talk about you as an artist because seeing you in the Zoom concert that we saw recently and then listening to this, there's something so unusual that I've never experienced as a concert listener or watcher before. And it's so intimate. I feel like each hand is its own human. (laughs) And, And I feel like your hands are playing duets with each other, but not controlled by the same brain. I feel like they're each their own spirit, left hand and right hand. And you have definitely somebody in the foreground and somebody in the background and that that shifts back and forth all the time, depending on what the music is requiring. But I've never heard such a I don't even know what the word is. I've been searching for days now for the right word, and I can't come up with it. But anyway, that quality of having two different spiritual beings, i.e. your left hand and your right hand, collaborating with their own distinctive input is um, is really so compelling to me. So do you want to talk about what I'm experiencing there? Well, I think it maybe came from my education because I studied for three years with this Pavel Masnon. He was such an amazing musician. And I think it came from him because he would make me play separately left hand or make sure that there's so many layers of sound. You know, if you have an accompaniment, it has to be very light so the right hand can sing. Mm -hmm. So very often I notice that people play so mechanically left hand and it dominates the right hand. And then the voice cannot come through because something is dominating it. And I think I'm just very aware of it for some reason. I don't know where it's coming from, really. I think I just want to hear very clear the melody and very clear accompaniment. But even in the accompaniment, some notes are more important than others, you know? Sure. Right. So you have dedicated a lot of your time and talent to kids, actually. And can you tell me about your Music for Children program? Well, every year when I give concert Carnegie Hall, which is not going to happen this year, unfortunately, I give a lot of tickets away for kids to attend the concert. And it's because of my grandmother who took me to see the concerts when I was young, and it gave me such an impression. That's why I think that the children should be exposed to real quality concerts, because they really feel it. They don't have to understand, Mm. because they just feel it. And then they get inspired and you don't know how it's going to later on affect their life. Yeah. And so I also go a lot to schools and I give like 30, 40 minute concerts for children, just a little bit of Mozart, a little bit of Chopin. And I play serious pieces for them, you know, and they love it. In fact, there's one great experience. A few years ago, I was invited to play in Paraguay and it was at the school. The school actually produced concerts in their like stadium, like where they exercise. Yeah. They turned it into a concert hall and could sit like thousand people. So in the morning, I did a concert for children. It was maybe 500 kids and at night was for adults. They were concerned. They were like, are those kids going to listen to the music? Because they didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. They were telling me, some kids have problems with sitting. We're going to sit them at this particular row with teachers. They can take them out if they're bored. Do you know what? Nobody was bored. I played for 40 minutes and I played Debussy, Claire de Lune. I played Rachmaninoff from Second Piano Concerto. And there was a problem child who actually was crying while I played. And then he came to the teachers and he said he never heard anything so beautiful in his life. And he wants to be a pianist. 
He was like seven years old. And those teachers were shocked. They called his mom and said the mother has to get a piano for the kid. Mm -hmm. And I played in another school in a poor neighborhood outside of New York. And the teacher asked all the kids to write what their favorite pieces. And they sent me all the notes. They were incredible notes. That one child wrote his favorite was Ave Maria. Another one wrote this favorite was Rachmaninoff. And they had the reasons, you know. So there were serious pieces I played for them. There were short pieces. I mean, I didn't play the whole Mozart Sonata. I would just play one movement. It's not like you have to play something fast and loud for kids to be entertained. They're completely sensitive. We grossly underestimate what kids are capable of. There's no doubt. Yeah. That's why I'm so passionate to actually bring them this music because I don't want classical music to die. Yeah. I think classical music doesn't have enough exposure. If you look at music being purchased and listened to, that is exactly true. It's great that you're doing that. And during COVID, you have found very creative ways to maintain what you do, performing live concerts regularly, as we've talked about, for small audiences over Zoom. And I admit, I was skeptical to attend my first Zoom concert, but it was deeply personal and intimate. And you really drew in your listeners and created an ambiance, as I mentioned earlier, I've never experienced before. And so how is it to be a performer in these situations? Are you enjoying them? And how are you affected by them? Well, you know, I always loved performing concerts, because I think it's when you perform that special energy comes in. I mean, I love practicing piano and playing for myself, too. And I do it many hours a day. But there's something about playing the piece and have other people listen to it, that something happens with me. Like I go to a different level of hearing it and very spontaneous and beautiful things happen. And I love that moment of creation. And I think that's what people love when they listen to me play. They know it's not automatic. Right. There's something happening, like as if you're watching a flower to be opening in front of your eyes. And I feel like each piece is like that. Like you watch this flower to open and different flowers are different pieces. And it's magical. So even though I never could imagine myself playing over computer, not in a million years, I could imagine that. But still, this magic happens. Does it happen differently, do you think? It happens differently. Yeah. I think it's also who's listening affects it. Mm -hmm. I think the night when you came, it was a very special group of people. And Benji, he's just so special. I think it created also that special listening, you know? The warmth, yeah. Warmth, but I feel that warmth every time. And it's fun for me because I want to keep my repertoire in my hands and I want to play it for people. Playing concerts a few times a week, I actually, I kind of like it because I went through my repertoire and I brought so many things back into my hands. I'm ready to go and play like a couple of full concerts now, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll bet you are. Now, you shared either during your Zoom concert or in our phone conversations some pretty funny performance situations, and I'm racking my brain to remember them, but my middle-aged mind is uh, stalling. So th the reason I wanted to talk about them is that they demonstrate how you overcome obstacles with some of the funky pianos that you have to perform on in your quest to bless people with your music. And was there a story about playing in India that I'm forgetting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was visiting India three years ago with my wonderful friend, Sharon Gannon. So, of course, for 10 days without piano, I'm not a happy person. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I'm saying, like, is anybody has a piano when we arrive to Mumbai? And then this amazing guy, Radhamaswamy, he said he knows a family who has a piano. That's the only family he knows who has a piano. And he's going to arrange for me to play. And he did. 
So we all went there, put special dinner party so I could play. It was a magnificent home. It's, I think, the biggest privately owned mansion in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. So we arrived there and I see piano in a corner of this huge living room, kind of shiny piano upright. It was not a baby grand and it was completely out of tune. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think anybody ever played it. (laughs) So I kind of looked at my friend like with those eyes. Yeah. And then I sat down and I played as if it was a perfect piano yeah. and nobody noticed anything. Yeah. Because I think when I hear the music inside, I can somehow pull it out of the instrument. I don't know how you do it. Honestly, I don't know how you do that. But even during the Zoom concert, you know, you were playing an old upright and it was out of tune. And as a piano guy myself, I was really skeptical. And you still managed to remove that obstacle just by being you and playing so beautifully. How do you focus and create beauty in such a challenging circumstance? I think it's because when you hear music so deeply, like my whole body hears how it's supposed to be. I project it on this piano <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I pull it out. I just have a sense. I play also very light. You know, when you have very light touch, mm-hmm. you don't even notice that notes out of tune sometimes because of the light touch. My friend Byron sits down and plays jazz and I tell him, my goodness, the piano is so out of tune. And he says, but when you play it, I don't hear it. That's what he tells me. Yeah, it's funny. I focus on the melody so much. So you hear the melody and you hear expression. Yeah. And you you go into that other world and it doesn't matter that some notes are maybe not quite in tune. And in fact, I'm going to tune it up next week. Yeah. Is there any advice you'd like to share with listeners, maybe for musicians entering this world as new performers? Anything that you think is key for them to know? The only thing I can say is like, if you really love it and you're passionate about it, then things will happen. But you have to take every opportunity to perform or play, like every opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happens. It doesn't happen because you wait just for this right thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's how it happened for me. Yeah. I could just take opportunity always to play and share this music and perform. That's why I'm doing those Zoom concerts, basically. Yeah. I won't even meet you if I wouldn't be doing those Zoom concerts, right? That's true. That's so funny. Well, there's a common thread between all of these episodes that I'm recording with people, and you already hit on it. It was in your first few words here in this question, which is love. If you really love it. So what I have found is that people that manage to carve out a living doing this It has to be because you really love it and there's nothing else that you want to do combined with, as you say, taking advantage of the opportunities and and not being unrealistic. You have to be realistic about taking every opportunity because the ankle bone is connected to the leg bone, if you will, right? They, They all lead to something, but the love has to keep that cynicism out, right? Yes. I remember when I just started, financially was very difficult because I mean, it's hard to make money being a musician, classical musician, and a lot of people have to take other jobs. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, how can I do it? Because I need to practice many hours. I mean, I used to practice three, five hours a day. That is major chunk of your day. Hmm. And you want to have that time to perfect your art and also to be in this other world kind of, you know? At that time, I was very lucky. I found opportunities to play on cruises. So I noticed that if I would go like for one week or two weeks on a cruise, it would pay my bills for a month. 
but I would give concerts. And then I could actually devote time to create a program for Carnegie Hall. And I had a lot of free time to develop as an artist. Mm-hmm. So that's very tricky. Yeah. Like you need time to develop as an artist. And a lot of people just want to make money. So if you're focused to make money, then you teach or you do some other stuff, you know? Yeah. But for me, playing piano and having that quiet time is happiness. Yeah. Like I always think which new piece I'm going to learn or I want to repeat some other stuff and it requires time. Mm-hmm. And because I love it, then I find other ways to make finance work. Sure. So how can people find out more about you and keep up to date with your current Zoom concerts? And is there anything I've missed that you'd like to share? Yes, I have my website. It's my name, katiagrineva.com. All my recordings are listed there. And I'm going to list the dates when I'm doing the Zoom concerts. I just have a link right now if people want to get into a Zoom concert. But I'm going to put the dates as well. Is there a way they can sign up for your Zoom concerts? I think they can just sign up um, for my website. Okay. That they want to be part of a mailing list. And again, that's katiagrineva.com. K-A-T-Y-A. G-R-I-N-E-V-A.com. Yes. Well, many, many thanks for joining me today. It was wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad you felt so. It's been a privilege getting to know you, truly, and I hope we can stay in touch. I hope so, too. Yeah, and, and I want to thank all of you listeners out there, too. Uh, you are the ones who make this worthwhile. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share them and tell a friend. You can find us on pianowhisperer.org or any major streaming platform. Thank you again, of course, to Classic Pianist 2, who makes these episodes possible. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.